welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of Secure Your Strategy Podcast, where your host, Chloe Mastagi, provides strategies to leaders and managers on how to repair critical issues in security and tech. We're glad you've tuned in. It's time to secure your strategy and your stakeholder approval. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hi everyone, my name is Chloe Mustagi, and welcome to another episode of ITSP Magazine's Secure Your Strategy podcast. And with me today, I have three wonderful guests, which I'm going to have them introduce themselves, because they're going to do a better job than I could possibly do. So I'm going to pass the mic first to Tia. Tia, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Uh, I'm Tia Hopkins. I've been in ITIT security for about 20, 25 years. Um, current role is Chief Cyber Resilience Officer and Field CTO, and uh, cybersecurity is my hobby. Nice. All right, Ken, passing the mic to you. No pressure. Uh, Ken Underhill, I've been in IT and cyber for a long time. I won't say because I want to protect my age. Uh, currently the CEO over at CyberLife, a uh, cybersecurity media company. Um, we also do a little bit of training as well. Excellent. Chris? Hi. Um author, podcaster, coach, cybersecurity hobbyist, just been in the field for over 15 years and on the hunt for my new adventure. So this is the perfect topic to talk about it. Yeah. So everyone, if you're not aware, what brings all three of these individuals on the podcast? Well, it's because they came out with a book, which is called Hack the Cybersecurity Interview. And for those that aren't aware, it is a wonderful book if you're trying to see what would be a good role for you? But also, if you're thinking about, you know, transitioning to a different role, this would be a great book for you. And if you're a new person entering this field, excellent book for you too. And it's broken down by basically each type of role out there. And then what to expect as what would you do in that role? How much would you make in that role? What are other roles that you could do with that skill set? And then the common interview questions that you would get. And I I have said this before to the authors, like, I wish I had this book at the very beginning of everything. So now I always tell everyone, get this copy of this book, no matter where you are in your cybersecurity experience or your career, is the perfect one to always tell a friend about that's interested in exploring what are other possibilities out there. So big question for you is, how do you all just come together suddenly and be like, you know what? We should make a book and we should make a book like this. Who was that catalyst in this group? So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll take that once. Yeah. So I, I was actually, yeah, I was writing the book and I said, you know, writing a book is a lot of work. Let me see if I can find a couple of people that'll take some of the load off me. So uh, Tia and Chris uh, gladly volunteer to jump in the mix on that. And and I think because of that, we were able to share a lot of different opinions, a lot of different thoughts and experiences. And I think that really makes the book what it is and why it's so popular. And, you know, of course, it's an international bestseller, not to brag a little bit, but let's go ahead and brag. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's also been adopted by a number of um, educational programs around cybersecurity across the both the U.S. and globally. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's hundreds of people have already reached out over the past year since we launched the book, just to, to let us know how it's helped them actually get that dream job. All right. So Tia and Chris, 
when he approached you and was like, hey, we should do this. What were the things that first came to mind of like, oh, we definitely need to touch on this particular topic? What were those topics? Well, I, I think um, one of the first things is really defining what the most popular roles were and how we would go about doing that. So that was the first area that we wanted to flush out. And of course, Tia having her experience in the field CTO and some of the sales area sales aspects uh, wanted to include some of those roles and I, I was all for it. Uh, so I think that was some of the first things. And then the next thing was really what are the questions that a hiring manager would ask or expect you to understand for such a role? Yeah, I echo everything Chris said. You know, you, of course, you want to cover those, those common roles that are out there because I think, especially for newcomers, there's a lot to take in. There's a bunch of domains. There's a lot of different directions you can go. How do you prepare to even be ready to try to get a job? And then what job? And how do I do that? Um, so, you know, the more popular roles are really important. And, and then also, I thought it was important to highlight some that weren't so common, right? That that uh, folks aren't as aware of as, as opportunities when you pursue cybersecurity as a career. And then debunking some of the myths, like, you know, I love the fact that we included roles like GRC and privacy, because there's a misconception as well that you have to be super technical and be hands-on keyboard. So, you know, just, I, I love the, the the breadth and the depth and, and how we, like to your point, like how much can I make and transferable skills and things like that. So um, yeah, I think we touched on all the things that were important, all the questions that someone would have um, when they're figuring out where they want to go and how they need to get there. So the next question for all three of you is what was like the one role that was the hardest one to write about for each one of you? And why? Um, of course, we're going to have to throw in the why. I'll take the information security manager because it's such a generalist title and it could be used to describe everything so for for that role we really had to try to to separate out the responsibilities from other roles and try to narrow more narrowly define uh, what uh information security manager is while still describing the wide area of responsibilities that they have to you yeah, for me, it was the one that I'm most passionate about, and that was the the cybersecurity sales engineer. And I think it was it was hard for me because I I could have written two pages, I could have written thirty pages, uh, because the sales element just adds an, a, a whole another layer of okay, what do I need to be uh, thinking about? Right, it's personal skills. Do you understand business? What does comp look like? But then you know, you want to make sure um, that that it touches on and really highlights the value of layering cybersecurity on top of that. So kind of distilling that down so it didn't make someone's head explode <laughs> was, was the challenge that I found. Yeah, I guess for me, forensic analyst, and, and really from a technical standpoint of, of realizing that things are going to be evolved by the time someone reads the book, and so what what kinds of questions might a hiring manager generically ask? I think that was actually a challenge for me across a number of roles is, yes, I can talk about a specific tech and we can go way in the down the rabbit hole, but is that going to be something that's asked two years from now when someone picks up the book or five years or whatever? So keeping it more generic was really tough for me 
because I really wanted to go down the rabbit hole on a lot of those roles, but I, I also wanted to keep it valuable for, for the reader themselves. So. so that's a great bridge to what I would be curious about. I know with like AI and ML security, like on the rise, the conversations, granted, they've mostly been on chat GPT, like LLMs and all that stuff. But I'm curious how do you see the landscape playing out and it, will there be a second book or will there be an, an addition to this of all the changes? Cause our space is always changing. Like Ken, what you said. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. So we have been asked to do a second edition. We haven't officially said yes yet. I, you know, we kind of said, give, you know, we're, we're all busy right now. Leave us alone. Um, with all the love in the world, we said that to PACT. But um, I think at some point in the future, we we probably will do another edition. Um, to your question around AI, you know, ML, LLMs, et cetera. Um, I think the thing for people to remember is that these are all just things to leverage, right? Just like way back in the day when Sims first came out. It's just a tool to leverage. It's another tool in the toolbox. And so I think as far as roles, some of the role names might change a little bit. You know, you probably maybe have to cover something like prompt engineer, you know, because that's all the buzz right now. But um, I, I don't really see the the roles changing too much aside from leveraging AI. So interview questions might be, hey, here's a scenario. How are, how are you going to use our new, you know, AI, next gen, ML, you know, insert buzzword solution to, to handle that particular situation. So I think that goes back to the fundamentals of if I know a, how a SIM solution works, for example, or an XDR or, you know, or even an EDR or something like that, if I understand how these things actually work, it doesn't matter if I, if your company's using one from Ecentire or if you're using, you know, Splunk or if you're using, it doesn't matter where it's from if I understand how the thing works. So I think that's what people need to really take away from this podcast episode is that if you understand the fundamentals of, of AI or LLMs or machine learning, if you understand that stuff at the fundamental level, then it doesn't matter in the interview because you're going to understand how to answer the question based on a scenario, which is really what you should get. You shouldn't get, what is the LLM that's popular in 2023? Well, sure. It's, you know, chat GPT is the most popular right now. Right. So you, that should never be an interview question. If it is, you should probably run from that company, but you're going to get it more around a scenario is my guess in the future. And, and I think if we do do another version of the book, that's what we, at least in my end, that's what I would start to include is different scenario-based questions to really get your brain thinking. And again, if you understand the fundamentals, it's so much easier to answer those types of questions. So that was kind of a politician answer to your question, I guess, Chloe. Oh, no, um, no. And, and I mean... so, I, so write me in for 2024 president. Um, but <laughs> but I guess to, to directly to it, I think it's just, again, it's just another tool in the toolbox. You do need to upskill. We talk about in the book about constantly learning and all the roles we talk about in there. And I think you need to be doing that right now while it's a hot topic because... Um, I think before we started recording, we were kind of chatting about that of that's what organizations are looking at. How can we leverage AI and all this other stuff to become more competitive on our business? And guess what? When they're doing that, they need cyber people like us to actually secure it. Because at the end of the day, they don't they care about making the money. They don't care so much about the security unless they get a Wells notice. But I'll leave it as that. To add on to that, I think our role as cybersecurity professionals is to enable the business to use tools like LLMs and do so in a secure way. So it, it is inherent in our position that we have understand how it works, how the data flows, how the data is protected, uh, who's creating these models and what 
what can they see from our data that we're submitting to it? These are all the types of questions that you have to think about as a security professional trying to secure an LLM solution for a business. Yeah, and I'll, I'll um, chime in as well. You know, to Ken's point around upskilling yourself, there's there's layers to that, right? You want to remain curious and continue to upskill yourself in the role that you're in, obviously, so your skills don't become stagnant. But you also want to stay up with what's going on in the industry, right? Stay on top of emerging technologies, you know, specific to AI, ML, LLM. We're all learning right now. And so just like businesses want a competitive advantage, which is the reason that this innovation and the need and desire to leverage AI in the business is outpacing our ability to secure it because we're still trying to figure out how to understand it. Those individuals that pursue that knowledge and develop an opinion, or at least have the knowledge to get the conversation started, will create a competitive advantage for themselves in in the job market. And that's really important. When it comes to like leaders basically trying to find folks to sit on their security teams, one of the things that keeps coming up is the lack of representation. And what that means is, for example, if we've always been used to someone like Bob sitting in that seat, that when we start getting applicants, we're looking for another Bob. We're not looking for someone who would be new to come to the table. What are some ways that leaders can check in with themselves to know if they're doing that or not, but also how can applicants be able to be aware that that may be the reason why things may be a little bit hard during the interview process? Uh, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, first, f- for, from the employer standpoint, they need to ensure that they're evaluating the requirements for the role, not the person that was in the role or left for the role. So understanding specifically what skills and competencies are needed for that role, as well as the leveling for that role. Bob didn't come in as a senior. Bob probably came in as a a junior or a mid. So if you're going to replace Bob, make sure that you replace him with, with someone or him her that is at that level that way you can grow someone else's career they could get to bob's level and you can keep bringing in fresh people i think part of that is i'm not going to try to say it politically correctly i'll just say you don't need to be politically correct (laughs) on this series don't worry about it part of that is not being lazy with the job description right like don't describe bob when you write the job description you know, um, and, and and it comes down to understanding where your program is, where this role fits into the program, how this role is going to drive the business forward. And that is where your requirements come from. Um, and, you know, Chris made a good point around leveling because just because to his point, just because Bob is a senior and Bob is leaving, that doesn't mean that the skill set required to do this job means you need to go find uh, another senior person. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that the security program is not in the state that it was in when Bob joined. So there's this whole reevaluation that needs to occur that, quite frankly, a lot of business leaders 
some don't want to do, some don't have time to do. And, and then in some cases, it's up to, it's up to HR anyway, and they, they don't really understand. And then you have the copy paste problem or the let chat GPT write the job description problem, right? So um, it's, a, it's a compounding issue. But if, you know, organizations really want people that are a fit, that they're not going to have to turn around and rehire for in six months because one, they hired the wrong person or the person joined the company thinking they were getting into something that they weren't, do your homework, be specific, be transparent. Um, and those relationships can tend to, to last a lot longer. Yeah, good good points from both. The only thing I'm going to add is around the interview process itself. There, There's always going to be the, some kind of inherent bias. could be that Chris and I grew up in different parts of the world. It could be that I'm obviously I'm the palest white guy around and Tia's, you know, black. It could be any number of things, right? It could be that I'm older, someone's younger. I mean, there's all sorts of biases out there. For organizations on the interviewer side of the house, um, what they need to focus on is, and we have some in the book, behavioral interview questions, right? That's how you identify top performers because somebody that's working right now in a construction job might be the, the cream of the crop. And because they don't have experience with Splunk, traditionally you would ignore them with your interview questions because you're like, well, they don't have Splunk, whatever, but they are a high performer. And, and a high performer in one field can always be a high performer in another. A lazy bum in one field is always going to be a lazy bum in another. It doesn't matter how many certs and stuff they collect. So I think really organizations, when they think about their interview process, remove, remove as much bias as you can. And what that means is give your interviewers a set of standard questions they ask of all candidates. They don't give an opinion. They, they Okay, candidate answered this way on these behavioral interview questions. The more you can standardize the process, which a lot of places don't, unfortunately, still, but the more you can standardize the process, the more you can remove that inherent bias, the more you, and that's uh, for, for people listening, like, like out there and they're thinking, why do I have to go through multiple interviews? That's a reason why is because we want to, because maybe I, I'm like, oh, Tia is going to be the greatest ever. And Chris interviews her and he's like, oh, it should be terrible. What are you talking about, man? Right. But we might have our biases. And so the more people you include on in the interview process, Within reason, employers, not 20 interviews, but a couple people, right? You get different perspectives. And also, if you standardize that process, that helps eliminate a lot of the bias that's out there. So when we when we talk about, to kind of the early part of your question, Chloe, when we talk about all this bias that's out there, when we talk about we don't want another Bob, we don't want another Sally or whatever, we want to get someone that's qualified in the role that's going to be a high performer and add value to the organization. That's where we need to, as an organization, like Tia said, stop being lazy. Like Chris said, analyze, do we really need a senior person or can someone else, you know, that's junior or mid-level do the, the job? Because guess what? They're cheaper. And then also let's standardize that interview process to eliminate as much bias as possible. So I know that because we're starting to get out of the pandemic at this point, fingers crossed and everything, but we're starting to make our way that, that direction. And now employers are saying, you need to come in the office. Or when they're hiring, they're like, you have to move to a very different state, different city to have this role. What can people do that are interviewing at this time to try to you know, make sure that they are getting an equal opportunity here where you know, they're willing to possibly move or maybe they're not, but to be able to make sure that they can still get that opportunity. Because we all know at this point that majority of the jobs in InfoSec, you don't need to be on site. So how can we go about that to help those that are looking for a role right now that are dealing with these uh, situations? Yeah, I mean, it's so that's really a complex question because you've got some organizations like Amazon, I'll toss them out there, 
as one that are saying, look, return to office by this date and time or look for a new job. Um, so if you're working for an organization like that, you may not have a choice. You may need to start looking now and be realistic that, hey, they're not going to change things, right? They're they're implementing the policy or they already have the policy. Um, part of that is because the organization, depending on where they're at, they may get some tax abatements or basically a tax write-off for having a physical location in that city or, you know, or that state or that region. So it's, it's a very complex issue. I would say for someone that's looking at jobs right now, just because a job is telling you, oh, you've got to relocate to, you know, X city before you start, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to apply for that in interview. I mean, in, in, I don't want to say the vast majority of cases, but in a good amount of, of situations, if you're identified as a very high performer and they really want you, they're either going to help with relocation or they're going to say you can be remote for, let's say six months or a year, you know, till you get things settled. But it's, it's pretty rare. Like I had that years ago with a place that really wanted me and they're like, you got to move here, whatever. I was like, it's expensive. I'm not moving there. And, and a little, it was probably like a month of back and forth and they, they conceded and it's like, okay, you can, you could be remote. Cause I basically said, look, give me a month. If I suck in that month, then whatever, I'll either leave or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll relocate. And in that month, I just crushed everything they ever thought was possible. And they said, okay, you're, you know, you're, you're obviously, because that's usually the fear from a lot of these places is if you're, if you're remote, even though we saw in COVID and there's stats from Google and all these places that say people are more productive at home, but there's still the fear with a lot of the traditional minded people like the Bobs of the world. And so I think if you're someone out there trying to get a job, if a job doesn't actually list that it's remote and you really want to work at that place, still go for it. Cause maybe in the interview process, things might change for you. Uh, and, and what I'd add to that is that it becomes a negotiating position, just like Ken said. So uh, go for it. Worst comes to worst. It's really good practice. Um, if you get to that stage where you're negotiating a relocation and it fails, that's really good practice that you can use somewhere else um, and get the package that you are looking for. So when people go through interviews, look at it while you might be stressed out, you might have just been laid off and like there's that stress that you need that job. If that stress comes through, the, the employers see that. So if you look at the interviews like practice and you can do them over again and you can practice more and you're just relaxed, it, it comes over like you're totally more confident. Um, so my two cents. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in with a, a bit of a different um, angle. I think the whole remote fully hybrid, you got to be on site three days a week, five days a week. You know, those things come down to fit when you're evaluating um, a job description. Uh, and it can tell you a lot about company culture as well. Um, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, when you get on a call, if you're a if you're a person that prefers to be in the office and they say it's fully remote, ask, is there an office that I could go to a couple of days a week or a couple of days a month if I like? Um, if it's on site, ask, ask why, you know, what is, what do you see? Like, what is the company policy around this? What is the benefit of your workers being on site versus remote? Is it a productivity issue? Is it a financial issue? At, like, ask those questions because the answers to those will tell you a lot about the culture of the company and, and help you make a better decision for yourself. I like your point, yeah, which is just keep asking why, for example, like, well, we want you to come in the office, you know, we want you to live on site, you know, not live on site, but 
you know what I mean? Um, and then just be like, and then say why? And then they'll give you some rough idea why. And then you go, why again? Uh, I'm sorry, but why exactly? You're giving me just the basic thing, but I want to understand why my particular role when and just keep doing that why they'll somehow sometimes I've noticed that with companies when you keep asking why the person who's being interviewing you starts recognizing like wait hold on they're making valid point here because I can't give a real answer why once in a while you'll get people like that otherwise they're gonna be they'll get really angry that you keep asking the question why like you think of like a kid asking like why is the sky blue well, you tell them and then they're like, but why? And then they keep going. Yeah. Anyway, if you ever want to win a debate with anyone, just keep asking the question, why? It irritates the crap out of people, but it can work too at the same time to your advantage. And it's a uh, lot less pressure when you're looking for a job yeah. versus you're at that company and you're remote and they say, right, you, you got to come back to the office or else, you know, yeah. you're you're a bit more challenged to ask the whys and push back because now you feel like your job's on the line. And I know I say this because being in the interviewee seat can feel stressful, but but there are advantages uh, to that negotiation process too. There's a lot less pressure associated when you're not already bought in. What about shares? So like people that are like applying for roles and then they're thinking of like, you have a competitive package your salary's going like this. Of course, we would love to pay you more, but you know we're a startup or something. And then they're like, "Then we'll give you shares." What are some insights that y'all have when it comes uh, to shares that people should know about? Because I feel like a lot of us may not know anything about shares, but we're like, "Oh, shares, this many, yeah. this cost, cool." But what what are some things that we should all understand about shares? Yeah, I'll I'll jump in on this and then let you guys. So so the thing with startups to remember is is stock options is what's floated around a lot and people get excited. Oh, I'm getting you know twenty thousand stock options for company X and it's, I'm going to be like Bill Gates. I'm going to be a trillionaire in three years. The reality is most stock options at a startup are not going to pan out for you because most startups fail. Um, as far as getting any type of equity at a startup, if you come very early at like an executive level, like let's say Tia was at, went to a startup as a, a VP or other senior leader, then she'll get she'll be able to pay for what's basically called preferred shares. And you know, she might pay a couple grand or whatever to get X, you know, few hundred thousand or whatever shares. In any event, the di main difference between those two is on the tax side of things. So let's say your startup does pan out. So stock options, you're going to pay basically usually pay them as income tax. So that means you're getting double taxed. Whereas a preferred share, it's really like if you're early at at an organization and at a senior level, and you pay for those, then you just pay what's called capital gains. So basically, you pay less tax. So that's on the startup level. And mo again, most startups fail. So try to get as much money as you can. The other thing with startups is focus on it being a learning experience. It could also get you a job title you want. So Chris talked about negotiation earlier. Negotiate something that will help you in your career. Don't rely on stock options. I know I'm going to break a lot of hearts with that. But the reality is most of them will never pay off for you um, in the long run. You might make a couple hundred grand, but then you pay like a couple hundred grand in taxes and it's you know, you're not going to retire and be Bill Gates driving around on a, on a mega yacht. Um, as far as like restricted stock units, which is what companies like Amazon, um, I don't know about East Entire, and we're not going to dive into TIA stuff there. But, um, you know, like other other larger companies will offer you what's re restricted stock units. So basically you're getting amount of common stock 
that you can then, you know, at, at, when it vests, investing is just when a certain period of time has passed. So most companies like, um, I think Amazon is like four years. So like every three or four years, you get X percentage of your stuff vest and you, you know, you can then go buy stock or whatever and Amazon and you, you know, make millions of dollars and you buy a mega yacht. But, but that's restricted stock units. It's larger companies usually. Um, they do those like bonus instead of bonuses. You'll get that oftentimes. Uh, you'll get it as part of your compensation package signing up. Uh, startups is where you see the stock options. Larger companies, you see the RSUs or restricted stock units. So I'm going to shut up now because I'm I'll go off on a tangent and let everyone else chime in. I'll jump in on the startup side um, because that's the world that I prefer just because I'm hard-headed. I don't like to do the way things that uh, they've always been done. And in a startup environment, it's completely chaotic and you get to define things and learn all the time, but it's insane. Um, to Ken's point, uh, most startups do fail. So um, for myself, I have to do my homework when I go into um, a business. So I'm probably not going to join a company um, that got $10,000 in seed funding and has two employees. They have they have a long way to go, you know, but um, a company that's been around for a few years, maybe has a couple hundred employees and maybe is on their second or third round of investment, then I mean, sure, there's still a chance they will absolutely fail, um, but there's a higher chance that they they might succeed. Um, and another thing to, to to take into account is to understand how the company is backed. Um, is is it private equity? You know, is it is it venture capital? Those are very different uh, experiences. And then what is the horizon? Ask questions around what is the exit strategy? Because if they say we're going to give you 50 million stock options and our plan is to exit in 20 years. That's no, <laughs> you don't want to do that, you know. Um, but if they're telling you we're going to give you 20 million options and we're planning to exit in six months, that's also not realistic, right? So, you know, you you kind of have to get a sense of the market and what makes sense. I think a lot of folks that went into startups from both, uh, you know, taking stop options, stock options and an investment perspective kind of got smacked in the face, right, uh, during COVID because we got to a point in the cybersecurity industry where if you could spell cybersecurity, your business was worth 16x. Like you were you were making hand over fist. Now we're back to, no, I'm not not really excited about investing. Not, you know, it's it's a volatile market. So there's there's the market to consider. There's the company you're going to to consider. There's what you want for yourself to consider. If you're just in a space where you want to, you know, level up and grow and get new titles and things like that, well, then the options don't matter because you'll, you know, have the opportunity to walk away with that uh, regardless. But if the money is the thing, then definitely, definitely um, figure out how to evaluate the business and understand the market so you can go into it eyes wide open in terms of what you think your opportunity for success looks like. I'll, I'll take a more pragmatic approach here. So as you're negotiating any comp package, um, make sure that you understand what your base comp is, because that's what you're going to live on. So you want to make sure that you get enough in your base comp for you to pay your bills. You don't want to be relying on any investing or any bonuses or anything like that, that they might try to tack on at the end uh, to try to win you over. Look at your bills, look at how you live. You need to be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. So your total, your total comp is up here, but 
you need your base comp to cover all of your bills. So that is the most important number. All the RSUs, all the stocks, everything after that, that's part of total comp. So when you're negotiating, make sure you keep those separate because some recruiters are going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to pay blah, 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 total comp. And then when you ask how much base comp, it's less than 50% of that because they're valuing the RSUs and the bonuses and everything in there. So uh, ask those types of questions as well. That's great advice because yeah. that goes for that goes for stock options, RSUs, that goes for, oh, you're going to get to work this much overtime and we'll pay that or commission, whatever it is on top of that base. Like I, I've always been taught to Chris's point, live off your base and everything else uh, is, is an added bonus. Yeah, because bonuses are bonuses. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you don't know if you're going to get them or not. <laughs> um, oh, okay, so we have to wrap up this episode. But if there is one thing or one takeaway that you wish that every single person who is looking to transition to a new role or start a new job in cybersecurity, what would be the best piece of advice that you have for each, well, for each one of you to provide to the listeners? I'll jump in quickly. Be curious, really figure out what role is going to try to make you happy. That means you have to look at all the different roles out there and it might take some investment time of your own to research the roles, to ask people in those roles, hey, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Maybe you don't wanna be an analyst writing 500 page reports every month, Maybe you don't want to be looking at sim logs. So figure out what you want to do and talk to the people that do it and really take that in before you go out and you apply for those first roles. I know sometimes it's tempting to apply for everything under the sun, but if you don't know what you're walking into, um, you might find yourself looking for something else in six months. Uh, I'll go next. Um, For me, I think in any role, cybersecurity or not, remember that an interview is is two ways. It's a two-way street. I I find a lot of individuals go into interviews feeling like they're in the hot seat. I got to get all the questions right. I got to make sure they like me and forget to ask those questions to make sure that the role is what they think it is, um, that the culture is going to be a fit and not asking questions about the types of leaders they'll be work with. You know, what is my team going to look like? Um, just remember it's a two-way street and you need to ask questions that evaluate the company the same way the company's asking questions that um, evaluate you. And, you know, they're asking their questions based on the homework that they did on you, which is mostly going to come from your resume. So to that point, make sure you do your homework on that company uh, before you go into that interview so you can ask intelligent questions. Yeah, so I think I'm just going to kind of echo a bit of what Tia um, and Chris said. So clarity is the biggest barrier that I've seen from people that are struggling to find a, their first cybersecurity job or even get their next job. It's it's always clarity. I, what do you want to do? Uh, I want to be an analyst in GRC and I'm open to pen tests. I'm like, what the heck do you want to do, right? Um, the other thing I'll, I'll leave everyone with is just a, a recommendation. So when you get in the interview, this could be in the phone screen. This could be like actually with the hiring manager or the team or whatever. At some point, and usually it's in the phone screen you want to do this. When they ask you, do you have any questions for us? The number one question to ask is usually they talk forever like I do. So you probably only have a couple minutes to ask your question and get an answer. The number one question to ask is what seems to be missing from the other candidates, you, candidates you've interviewed so far? 
they'll literally think about that and they'll tell you the exact answers. So when you go to the next round, you've got all the answers. You can figure out how, if you don't have the actual thing they're looking for that's missing, you can figure out how to talk about your experience, your transferable skills, all these things that will make you the right fit for that piece of the puzzle that's missing. But I, so many people get in the interview and the, what questions you have for us? Oh, what do you like about working here? What is, you know, what's the culture like? You should know the culture before you ever get in that interview. Talk to people that work there. Look at how they post on social media. Are they requiring people to return to the office all of a sudden? Are they saying you better move here and into the Bay Area in San Francisco and pay you know four million dollars for rent just to work here and make a hundred grand a year? Like what you know, you should do that research ahead of time. But the question I mentioned is one that I, I rarely see people ask. And it, and it is like icing on the every single time it shocks the interviewer. Not if they watch this, now they're going to know. But it normally will shock the interviewer and, and actually make them move you to the next round, even if you're not qualified, because they're like, oh, there's something about this person because they asked that question. These are all great advice. So thank you all so much for being on here. I have to get you back on. Maybe we could do this an annual thing where we come on and we talk about like what are the things, the new roles out there and the, the new changes in the industry when it comes to hiring. Definitely gonna have to get you back. So thank you all for being on here. And to everyone, I'll see you on the next episode. Until then, have a fun rest of your day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Secure Your Strategy Podcast with Chloe Mastagi, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.